We're going to read from Matthew 5, and I'll pick it up from verse 27. Let me pray. Father, as we open your word now, Lord, it is our desire that you speak, and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit is supreme here, making your voice heard and changing our hearts, Lord. Lord, even before we begin, we confess, Lord, that we know we're weak. And Lord, we need you. We ask for you to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Maybe not the best message to have Seth repeating everything I'm saying in that manner. So uh, glad that he's left. Um, we're going to be thinking about two, two main issues, and you're already avoiding eye contact. <laughs> um, we're going to be thinking about two main issues today. One is, um, why, why is lust bad? I don't think that's necessarily immediately apparent. And we're going to be thinking a bit about that. And secondly, how does Jesus want us to deal with it? And I think you probably can all agree with me that surely of all the issues that touch on the 21st century church and our individual walk with God, given the context that we're in, um, I think that this has to be one of the most challenging, relevant, um, powerful and important things for us to be thinking about. So I urge you to to think and to, even as I'm speaking now, say, God, speak to me. Please change me. Please help me to um, listen to what Jesus has to say. But first, let's just think a little bit about the context. What was Jesus doing here? You know that um, he's just begun sort of an explanation, an exposition of certain Old Testament laws. And he's cutting right in at what people had thought and correcting them. And far from wanting to overturn the laws, he seems to be doing the very opposite. He seems to be intensifying them, sharpening their impact, making them uh, more daunting and challenging. And obviously that, that comes across in this one. Now with regard to this law, it was the seventh of the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from the mountains, he carried the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And the whole of the Old Testament law, with hundreds of its commands, really falls under these Ten Commandments as the broad categories of what God wants, um, what he, how he describes morality. And this is a seventh, do not commit adultery. Now, one of the things that we were talking about last week is that it's, it's human to hear a law and to find either find ways around it, find ways of skirting to the edge of it, finding ways of making it a little bit more manageable. And certainly that's what had happened with this law. That the, the teachers of the law had taught, basically, that you could pair the seventh command with, uh, with the one just after it. 
the eighth command, which was that you shall not steal. And they'd said to commit adultery is theft. It's theft of, an, of another man's wife or another woman's husband. And of course they're right. Um, Paul, well, actually throughout the, uh, particularly in one of Paul's letters, he says that when you're married, the person you're married to is, is, your, is your property, is your possession. So to take another person's spouse or to take somebody who isn't yet your spouse is, of course, some kind of theft. But here's the problem. If you just understand adultery in those terms, there's an enormous sort of playing field right up to the point where you, you, you take somebody who's not yours. And it allows for an enormous range of what Jesus now is going to call sin right up to and including, or almost including the point where you actually take someone who's not yours. And what Jesus does instead is he redefines the seventh commandment in the light of the tenth, which is that you shall not covet. He uses the exact same word, actually, that's in the Greek version of the Old Testament. Um, Covet, lust, desire after, earnestly uh, hunger for. It's a passionate desire it's describing. And so by coupling adultery with coveting or lustful desire, he seems to make this command so much more potent and convicting. Everyone knew that the sin of adultery was one of the worst sins. In fact, it was punishable by death under the Old Testament law. And that's why the woman is dragged to Jesus, found, caught in the act, and they say, shall we stone her? So to take a law like adultery, which is regarded as, even to this day, even in a society as sexually promiscuous and licentious as ours, we still think that guys who commit adultery and cheat on their wives or vice versa are, are heels, are idiots, don't we? We don't think it's excusable. So how much more for them? They think this is the worst thing. And now Jesus takes this idea of adultery and he, he incorporates a whole lot more under that category. And we seem to be caught then. So what I want to do then is think about this first question. Why does he do that? Why does he say that lust is wrong? Because I think a lot of people would reason this way. They'd say, to, to lust after somebody else is, is a sin that doesn't hurt anyone. It's almost like a crime without a victim. We can all understand how adultery is a, is a massively destructive thing. It not only wrecks the, the, the spouse's life, it also wrecks your own life, and it wrecks the lives of children and all kinds of fallout and consequences. But people say, lust isn't like that. Why would Jesus take such a hard line on something that seemingly doesn't really have the same kind of impact or the same seriousness to it? Now, I want to give you three of my answers to that question, why, why I think that Jesus does this and why he says it's wrong. But just a couple of clarifiers before I do that. One is this, that you mustn't confuse lust with sexual desire as one and the same thing. We know that God puts sexual desire in us. And I think that lust is to sexual desire what greed is to hunger. 
I remember when I was um, a young teen, probably only about 13 or so, my, there was a couple of us a similar age in the youth group at church, and one of our youth leaders decided he was going to sort of disciple us. So he invited us to go along into his, his study once a week, and we'd go and sit there, and we'd start, he'd start asking us questions about what was going on in our life. And he'd regularly ask the question, you know, he'd talk a little bit about lust, and he'd say, Have you guys, are you guys experiencing any struggle with lust? And I immediately would uh, avoid eye contact and... Um, and, 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 and deny it and, and say no. And then next week, sure enough, he'd ask the same question and I'd be like, awkwardly. And the reality was, I, I think that the most that was going on with me at the time was that I'd experienced attraction to, to, um, to girls. And, and in a way, I was sort of confusing the whole thing. And by making something that's good a dirty thing, you actually end up in trouble down the line when you find um, you can... Guilt produces more guilt, produces failure. These things, we have to be clear that sexual attraction or attraction is not exactly the same thing. It's what you do with it that then becomes lust. And we also have to be clear on this point because this is so important in our modern context especially that if sexual desire is something that God put in us and if sex itself is something wonderful and God-given then we don't want to make out like it's a dirty thing. And in fact, when people think about a Christian's attitude to, to sex and to, you know, where we're labeled to sort of be puritanical, I think the common misconception is that we, we think sex is dirty, we think it's, it's a degraded act, that we think, and there's been reasons for this, certainly there have been Christians and theologians in history given that impression, but I would say that's almost the exact opposite to what's going on in the biblical understanding of sex. The reason why we are so careful about sex and sexuality is because not because we have a lower view of sex than the world around us, but because we have a higher view. Because we see it as something far more than just an animal act. But that we see it as the power to bind souls together. And the man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's what the Bible says. So when Paul is addressing the Corinthians, who apparently were in maybe a worse context than we are in 21st century London, and they, are, they have the availability of all kinds of lewd sexual acts around them, and some of them even in the church were engaging in prostitution, he says, how can you take your body and join it with a prostitute and become one flesh with her. He's saying sex is so much more powerful than you've realized and more holy than you've realized and that it has the power to bind souls. So we must begin with that view, that understanding, that biblical understanding that Jesus does not think that it's a a dirty thing. He thinks it's a, a powerful thing, a holy thing, that it has a purpose. It's a spiritual act. So then, coming back to the question, why? Why is lust wrong? I want to give you three answers to that before we consider some of the the remedies that Jesus offers. My first is this. Because of what lust reveals about your heart. Remember that one of the things that Jesus is, is, is destroying here is our tendency, our ability to externalize the law just in terms of Outward actions, 
if I have or have not acted in a certain way, that tells me whether I have or haven't broken the law. God, the Bible says, isn't just interested in your actions. You remember how when David is selected to be the king of Israel, the reason why the prophet Samuel is directed to him specifically was not because of his outward conduct primarily, but because God had gazed upon his heart and found a heart that pleased him. So it says in 1 Samuel 16, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him, speaking of one of the brothers. But he says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The Bible tells us that our desires are part of our makeup and of our standing before God, that your desires can be right or wrong. And you think about this. Just turn this around in your head for a moment. You never commit a sin that you haven't already conceived of in your imagination. The sin always begins in the heart and in the imagination, something that that is conceived there. So you can't divorce the act from where it began, where it was birthed, the heart, the soil in which it grew and in which the decision took place to do something. We were saying last week how the distinction between murder and manslaughter is not the act, it's the intention. Well, isn't that also true here? That if God is looking at the heart, then he is assessing what's going on there. Lust, then, is not something right. It's, something, it's a perversion of something good that God's put in us. It's when sexual desire becomes something warped, something powerful, something controlling in your heart. You remember how Paul says in, one, in Titus 1, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. I think that what he's saying is that in a perfectly pure world or with people who are perfectly pure, you could look upon nakedness and not desire that which isn't yours. I think that's how God made the world. Adam and Eve, they were naked, they were not ashamed. Hypothetically, if they hadn't eaten the fruit, we'd have all been naked, presumably, living in some kind of temperate paradise without clothes and the need for them because you would, to the pure, all things are pure. This is not an argument for naturism, by the way. (laughs) Because the reality of our hearts is that our hearts aren't pure. And lust is the evidence of that. Lust is a revealer. What does lust say about your heart? Let me add another thing here. Because you cannot control lust, it controls you. Why is Jesus against lust? Well, for this reason, that you don't control it, it controls you. I was thinking, how how can we understand this? I think here's one way that you can understand it. It's like a parasite inside you. When I was trying to think of an example of that, the idea that struck me was, you ever see the occasional nature programs, you get little wasps, this 
thousands of species of them. Little wasps, that the way that they reproduce and, re, and, and, uh, and see their offspring grow is that they lay eggs inside a host. And as it happened just this afternoon, two hours before I came to the service, I got the broom out, picked up the broom in our, on our back um, decking, and my broom touched a little black wasp. And as it flew away, I noticed that behind where it had flown from, there was a spider sat there on the decking, and it had been on top of that spider. And you tend to think, spider versus wasp. It's like Batman versus Superman. Which one is going to win? We're not quite sure. But you have to understand, the wasp always wins. And then it plants an egg inside the spider, which then becomes a larva and grows and then consumes the spider from the inside until it bursts out, the spider dies, brand new wasp is born, disgusting stuff. <laughs> now, the reason why I draw that analogy is you've got to understand that while lust is not something foreign to you, it's not an outside body, it is something that begins to grow. And the more you eat as it were, the more it grows. The more you feed it, the more it demands. Paul says in Galatians 6 that he who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. He's saying, what you feed, your desires. If you feed them bad stuff, your desires grow until they kill you. And then he says, he who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. The opposite can also work. But you think about lust as a parasite inside. You tend to think, oh, I can control this. The reality is, no, you cannot. It controls you. One of the reasons for that is that lust is governed by this law of diminishing returns. You all understand the concept in the context of drug taking. That a person who is hooked on a particular addictive drug, hooked psychologically and physically, needs more of that to reach the same high that they used to get on a lower dose. So when we tragically hear the news of some celebrity found dead in their apartment because they've overdosed on some illicit drug, all they were doing was trying to reach the same level of happiness they experienced the first time they took that drug. And the diminishing returns is that the first time it's a thrill, the second time it's nice, and you need more in order to satisfy the desire of your heart. Lust is like that. When you first have a relationship with somebody, just holding hands is a thrill. It's, it's a wonderful, exciting thing, but soon that wears off, and you begin to want more. You want the same thrill. It's the same with what you look at through your eyes. These things, it feeds lust and lust grows so that it demands more and more. This is true not only for you as an individual in terms of your own whatever boundaries you may have crossed. It's harder to re-erect the boundaries and, and eventually you want to cross more. It's true at an individual level. It's true also for whole societies. When I was reading this, uh, sorry, studying about this, uh, one of the authors I read is a guy called A.W. Pink, and he, he um, was writing, I think he published his, his commentary on this somewhere in the 30s or 40s, and, and, and he comes to the conclusion that we shouldn't engage in, um, 
he gives some examples. He says, um, promiscuous dancing or mixed bathing. And we read that and we think, you can't go to the swimming pool. There's no bathing that isn't mixed except the dodgy kind. So what, was it, this doesn't seem so culturally irrelevant to where we're at now. But you've got to understand that in the context in which he's writing, the boundaries are a little bit further in, a bit tighter. What would provoke lust in your average guy or girl? And sadly, we have collectively experienced this law of diminishing returns. We have become desensitized to more and more stuff that's put in front of us. It is not uncommon. In fact, it is extremely common now to walk down the street and see women in lingerie on the sides of buses picking up school children. Now, what's that about? It's saying that our entire culture has fed this parasite of lust and that we are subject to the law of diminishing returns. I was never more aware of this than when we spent six weeks in Nazareth, which is an Arab town north of Israel. And, um, you know, it's a a slightly more conservative culture because of the various religions at work in in Israel. And we came back on an easy jet flight to Luton and we jumped on the coach and we arrived down at Oxford Street at about um, 2, 3 a.m. And uh, immediately you're hit not only by the billboards that you kind of learn to ignore or they just went, didn't have the same effect. You're hit by them and by girls on the street wearing practically nothing in the middle of winter. And it's like, wow, this, this is a really, really licentious culture that we live in. I'm not saying that they don't have that problem in other cultures, but you can see how this works. Lust, you can't control lust. Lust controls you. And therefore, if you accommodate it, it it begins to take over. It's like the wasp inside the spider. And it's interesting, I think it's interesting that even our anti-God secularist culture that hates the language of sin has had to recognize some element of truth in this because we now, we don't talk about sin, we talk about addiction. It's kind of substitute word. We say that people are addicts. And in one sense, it's agreeing with the biblical view. It's saying that there's a power stronger than you, that you are, you're under some control here. And your, your willpower alone isn't strong enough to overcome this. But there's a disagreement between what the culture says and what the Bible says, because the language of addiction seems to absolve the practitioner from any responsibility. If you're addicted to something, you're somehow a little bit less responsible for the stupid things you're doing. The Bible would say, listen, the culture's right, that you are becoming weaker and that this thing has got control of you. That's how sin works. Without Christ, without the help that he offers, without his spirit. But the culture's wrong. And that God does hold us responsible. That's what Jesus is saying here. Let me give you a third reason. We talked about how lust, what it says about your heart, what it says about the condition of your heart. We talked about how you can't control it, it controls you. And listen, let me add a third thing. That what, lust is never private. It's never just a personal thing. So when we, make, when we reason things out and we say... Um, Listen, no one's getting hurt by this. Um, 
I'm not hurting anyone. I, it's okay. We can manage this. That's not true. Let me tell you why it's not true. One reason is that it will corrupt you. That the more you have of filth in your heart, the more like a toxic waste it builds up until eventually, eventually this waste will seep out into other parts of your life. It begins to affect everything. It begins to affect particularly, most of all, your relationship with God becomes a dominant issue. The thing that's keeping you back, the thing that's that's making you ashamed when you're with other Christians. It begins to corrupt how you relate to other people. It will affect your relationships. It affects how you look at other people and how you treat other people. It affects whether you even want to be with other people. It can cause you to withdraw from people. Even in these indirect ways, it is changing you. It is affecting you. It's corrupting your heart. It will affect your future relationships. And you can't just switch it off when you find somebody that you want to marry. And listen, how do you know? If lust is the powerful agent here, how do you know that you won't act on it in some way that you would never have thought possible? You've already crossed boundaries that you didn't intend to cross in your heart. How do you know that that won't continue? So you see, this isn't a victimless crime. This isn't a harmless indulgence. This is something that, very, in a very real way, wreaks havoc with your spiritual life. All of us have experienced that to some extent. So let's not kid ourselves. Let's be serious about understanding what Jesus wants us to do. What does all this point to? Well, it says that your heart betrays you, accuses you. And even as we're talking about this, and even as we read the words of Jesus, we we know we're guilty. It's amazing the capacity that we have to rationalize wrongdoing, isn't it? I think one of the most famous examples was Bill Clinton when he was caught. Monica Lewinsky began to speak about a relationship and... He famously went on camera in a press conference and said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Now, by some definitions of what sexual relations mean, he was telling the truth. But anyone who knows anything (laughs) knew he was lying. His wife knew he was lying. He was rationalizing what he'd done. And Jesus wants us to understand that He's bringing the full weight of the law upon the hearers, upon us, upon you, upon me. And he wants us to, he wants us to experience the pain of, of the offense that we cause to God. And we know it. When we hear it, when we understand what he's talking about, all of us, we experience a measure of conviction about this, don't we? And friends, if you call yourself a Christian, how much more for us? It's been interesting to me that in recent years, you, you even hear about you know, celebrities, well-known people who are not Christians in any sense, who want to who uh, talk about this stuff and recognize it's wrong. You know, there was amazing, um, I say amazing, I don't, 
I don't really mean amazing, but there was a really interesting interview with John Mayer, who's you know a kind of a sex symbol and a a, a, a man who, who stands for everything that you want to be. As if you know, if you're into pop music and all that business, and you know, an object of desire. But he said he'd lost the thrill of having sex with women because of his addiction to pornography. It's interesting to me that Russell Brand, when he talks about pornography and he says, look, even as you do it, you don't think, well, that was a good use of my time. And he says instead, well, that was, you know, you don't feel good afterwards. You feel dirty. And this is a guy who is not a Christian. So what Jesus is wanting to do, he's talking about something that we all know in our hearts. We all know that this, this has, to be, it has to be dealt with. So it brings us to this question. How does Jesus want us to deal with this? And the answer that he gives, to use the language of the old theologians, is that he talks about mortifying the flesh. Putting your flesh to death. You remember that your flesh is a language in the New Testament for the sinful nature, the part of you that fights and wars against God. And Jesus' counsel to us is here. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Unfortunately, in the early century, some people took this to an extreme and began cutting off body parts. Oregon was the most famous. He was one of the early church fathers who castrated himself. And clearly, if you give this a moment's thought, you know that that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Because you can cut one eye out, and you still have another eye to lust with. In fact, if Jesus is wanting to push the the application of the law into your heart, then the last thing you do to deal with it is make it about your body. It's not about your body, the physical flesh. It's about the heart. So what is it that he wants us to do? I think he wants us to ask three questions. The first is this. He wants us to ask, what are your triggers? John Stott, he he said this. He said, I doubt if ever human beings have fallen victim to immorality who have not first opened the sluice gates of passion through their eyes. Now, if we take that in a woodenly, literalistic way, we know that's not quite accurate. David Blunkett, famously, the blind home secretary under Labour government, committed adultery. So you don't need to see in order to lust. But if we understand this in a spiritual sense, that what you gaze at affects your heart, We can take it literally, we must take it literally, but we must also broaden what this is about a little bit. To understand that it's the things that begin to affect your heart that then have effect upon you, change you, bear fruit within your life. This is why in Proverbs 4, um, I think it's verse 23, the writer says, set a watch or guard your heart for From it flow the springs of life. Let me just give you the the ESV version. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. 
The language of guarding, of keeping, means to set guardians around. Adam was a, the guardian, the keeper of the garden. But it also has a military sense to it, this word. He's saying that you have to be careful about what goes in and what comes out. Because when stuff goes into your heart and affects your heart, he says, from it flow the issues or flow the springs of life. The stuff that comes out of you, the fruit that comes out of you, is a result in some way of what you've let in and what you've let camp in your heart. So Jesus wants us, first of all, to think about this question. What are your triggers? How do you guard your heart? Because lust doesn't just spring on you out of nowhere. There are certain things that provoke lust. And so you want to be asking yourself these kinds of questions. Where? Where am I when I feel a temptation? When? Is it... At certain times of life, or in certain seasons, or at certain times of day, or certain times of the week. Who? Are there individuals? Are there groups that when you keep company, you find that it corrupts you? Why? Is it in, when you're lonely, when you're alone? Is it when you're out doing salsa dancing, or whatever it is? Why? What is it? I think he wants us to be intelligent about the things that cause you to feel temptation. It's not a clever thing to walk into temptation. We're also stupid because we do it knowingly, willingly. How often have you sat down to watch a box set and thought, for various reasons, maybe because you paid for it, although these days it's all subscription, isn't it? Maybe because your friends have recommended it to you. Maybe because everyone at the office is talking about it. And soon enough, you start to encounter stuff in there that's doing your heart no good. But rather than turn it off and think, Jesus, you're better than this and I want you, you just keep going because you don't want to be the odd one out. You don't want to be ignorant about culture. You don't want to miss out on the fun, the excitement of of the series. We've got to be intelligent about what the triggers are. I, this happened just this morning. I was, um, you know, I try, I try to sort of control a little bit what I eat. I kind of ballooned after we got married and um, uh, went from like 11 and a half stone to like 15 stone. And, um, you know, that's, that's, quite, that's like half my weight again. So I was, I was bigger than I should have been and came to see his graduation. And looking back on those photos, I looked like this fat American stood next to this little... Um, Malaysian girl, sorry to all Americans, there's none here, are there? So we're doing fine. Um, so I tried to control a little bit what I eat, and this morning I you know, made the determination after I got up, I was going to have just some Greek yogurt for breakfast. It's high fat, but it's zero carb, so we're good with that. And, uh, and, then, and then on the sideboard was a pack of almond croissants, which C had lovingly bought from the supermarket. And the thing about almond croissants is that they're not just carbohydrate, they're also sugar carbohydrate just pumped into the middle of them. So it's like layer upon layer of carbohydrate with a bit of fat mixed in. And, um, and you know, sure enough, I, I start rationalizing. I you know, sat down to do, get ready for this morning and I was like, I, you know, I feel a bit grumpy. You know, I think it's because I'm hungry. I've had my yogurt, but it doesn't really fill me up. And so it didn't take long before all my resistance had gone. 
and I was, I was just a mess with croissant <laughs> all over me. So, and, and not feeling that sense of shame and guilt at having gone against my own decisions. And you know that feeling. So for some of you, it's ice cream pot, an entire ice cream pot in one night. Well, listen, these things, these things are much easier to resist when it's not in front of you. So I blame my wife. <laughs> but you listen, you've got to... Jesus is saying, what are the triggers? Be intelligent about this. You're not stupid. You know. You know the circumstances, the situations, the things that cause you to experience lust, or the people. It takes a little bit of analysis, but let's not be stupid. And then... The second question he'd ask us is this. What's the cost of not dealing with it? Because he's really quite heavy with us here. He says, you know, that's a, a massive understatement. He says it's better that you lose one of your members, which means a body part, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. We get other passages like this which are convicting and difficult. I think about Galatians 5.21 where Paul's talking about the works of the flesh as opposed to the works of the spirit. And he says, uh, and he starts listing them and one of them he says that he gives envy, drunkenness, orgies and things like these. And he says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's talked about sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you read that and you tremble because you think, surely the finger's pointed at me there somewhere. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that he wants you to know how to walk and to please God and how to do some more and more. And then he starts talking about the negative side of that. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles, who don't know God, that no one transgress his brother in this matter. And then he adds this, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What does he mean when he says that God's an avenger? He's picking up on what Jesus says. It's better to lose one of your members and that the whole body goes into hell. And I think that there's a reality to this that it may be not just an eternal thing. It can even just be in this life. You can't indulge these things without God avenging in some way. That God will discipline his children. I remember reading Joshua Harris's book about lust years ago and he said... Um, that a friend of his had memorized that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. And he said his lust problem was dealt with because he was living under the fear of God. Now, when Jesus then challenges us, he's really asking, well, how serious are you about this? Do you remember how Paul talks about his own devotion to God in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9? And he talks about how, how uh, he has to vigorously control himself. And he says, every, he says things like this, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. You know, athletes have extraordinary self-control. You read 
the stories of the getting up at the crack of dawn and in the freezing cold and the devotion they have because they're hungry for glory. And he says they do it to receive a perishable wreath. You know, they literally had something that just perished. They would win a laurel wreath and then it would go rotten. And not one of them exists today because these things were not lasting. And he says, we, we an imperishable. And then he says, so I do not run aimlessly. He says, I do not box as one beating the air. And every boy's done this. You've watched Rocky Balboa and then you go, <laughs> and like punch the air, inflicting damage on precisely no one. And Paul says, I don't, I don't just sort of waste, expend energy, like pretending I'm serious about holiness. He says, I beat my body. He says, I make myself black and blue. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself won't be disqualified. So he's asking you the question, Jesus is asking the question, how serious are you? Because you've got to make a calculation here. You've got to put it in the scales. You've got to say, look, does, does Christ and all that he has for me, the kingdom of heaven, all that he wants to give me, my calling, the rewards of eternity, does all that mean anything to me? Because if it does, you will want to take drastic action, which is the third question. What drastic steps must you take? Do you want to deal with it? Well, what drastic steps must you take? Cut off your hand. Gouge out your eye, he says. And this isn't asceticism. We talked a bit about asceticism. Ascetics were people who, who practiced self-denial to an extreme as a means of righteousness. So guys who, who climb onto the pillars, like Simon of Stylites, and live for 30 years up there being given water and whatever, sure, he probably doesn't experience some lust up there. Um, but an ascetic lifestyle... Is, is problematic in the biblical view. Guys who inflict punishment on their own bodies, who wake up at the watches of the night like monks used to, are destroying their bodies, but made sure they pray throughout the night or slept on cold slabs of stone, all these things. But the problem with asceticism is it's saying that the, the acts of self-denial are righteous in themselves. And the Bible says, no, the only reason you deny yourself is because you're admitting how, how rubbish and weak you are You do it as a means to an end. And the end is the purifying of your heart. You don't think there's anything particularly righteous about, let's say, like John Piper says, not not owning a TV. He says, the only reason I don't have a TV is because I lack self-control. It's an admission of my weakness. That's how we should understand the, the denial that's going on here. That it's not saying that desire is evil. It's not trying to squash all desire. It's trying to redirect, rechannel. Be careful about the channels through which your desire runs. And so he asks again, what drastic steps must you take? And it's been fascinating to me to learn a little bit. You know, you pick up the odd article online or read the odd book about they're doing more and more studies about human behavior. And the psychologists have found that habits... Habits are formed by following the same basic pattern. Cue, routine, reward. The cue is a thing that triggers. It's the, the location or the time 
or the emotional states you're in, or the people you're with, or the preceding action, the thing you just did before. That's the cue which triggers a behavior. So guys who are into smoking, their cue is sitting down at the pub sometimes with a pint with some friends, and then suddenly your hand feels empty. And you want to light up. But you can apply this to all kinds of things, good and bad in your life. The alarm clock goes off. What's the first thing you do? I'm betting at 90% of you reach for your smartphones and check Facebook after you've snoozed it twice. (laughs) Cue, routine. You start doing the same patterns. You step into a routine, a sequence. This almost becomes automated, like muscle memory. And then finally, the reward, the rush, the thrill, which seals the habit so that it becomes um, self-perpetuating. And the next time you hit the cue, your brain wants the reward, so it pushes you into the routine. Now, really, it's not saying anything different from what Jesus was telling us two millennia earlier without a psychology degree, but with the ability to know the mind and the heart of man, which is what John's Gospel tells us. Your eye, your hand, your almond croissant, whatever it is, Something is triggering, cueing, pushing you into sin. And breaking habits isn't easy. It's not easy to break the habit of when you walk down the street and not looking at people lewdly. It's not easy to break the habit of not looking at the billboard that you know is there. Or not fantasizing about that guy you work with. Or not reading those novels that you enjoy. Or, those, or watching that drama that you know before bedtime. Whatever it is. But he wants you to be radical and ask you this question are you dealing with this if you try and do it on your own strength of course it is impossible we have to come back to Christ we have to rely on him and so as I close I want us just to think and meditate again on that second beatitude verse 3 verse 4 sorry Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus says that when, you, when all of us hear the stuff and we're squirming, hopefully that ought to give birth to something deeper, a more profound conviction, a grief that we have offended God. Blessed are those who mourn. Christ wants you to experience conviction of sin. If you can't experience conviction of sin, there is something wrong with you. And, and Jesus can't deal with you, won't deal with you. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? So that you can get a joy that you don't deserve. For they shall be comforted, he says. None of what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be read out of the context of how he began. He began by telling his hearers the gospel. It's the poor in spirit. It's the mourners. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they know they don't have it. They're the ones who are blessed. So friends, the last thing you should do is go away from today and think, woe is me, I'm rubbish, and then leave it at that. That will only drive you further and further away from God. God rather wants us to come back and recognize, yeah, we failed 
a thousand, ten thousand times. Blessed are those who mourn. And always, he invites us back on the same condition. Will you be poor in spirit? Will you come to me in genuine grief over your wrong? Because then I will comfort you. I will minister to you. Because I took that sin upon me when I went to the cross. The lashes I received, every one of them was on account of the lusts of your heart. That you might be free. And the promise of freedom is a real promise. I don't think any Christian should live with the expectation that this is going to dog them for life. I think you should live with the expectation that Christ wants to change you. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's slow. But either way, he's going to do his work in your life if you want to come to him and be healed and be changed.